1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses was calling all the people of Israel to love God supremely. He started the book of Deuteronomy by reminding the nation how God had provided for them and sustained them all these years, even when they were rebellious. Moses told them to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength. Their obedience was to be out of love for God, but their obedience was to persist even when God called them to do difficult tasks. God tells them that the nation of Israel would be his instrument of judgment on the people groups of Canaan. But God also set the nation of Israel aside as a special people chosen to bless the rest of the world. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7.
0: He says, now the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. Because you were the smallest, the fewest of all people. Later in Deuteronomy, the Lord will tell them, the Lord didn't pick you because you were better than anybody else. In fact, you were the most stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people God could find. That's why he picked you. Because if God can use you, he can use anybody. That's what he says. I'm not my words. So when you look at yourself and go, God picked me. Just remember that God picked you because like Paul said, to be an example, that if God could save the chief of sinners he could save anybody. If God can save and transform this life, oh, he can work in your life. He can work in your life. We're to be that kind of a testimony. It's important to have a zero tolerance policy toward idolatry because we're not intrinsically better than anybody else out there. God didn't pick us because of anything more lovable about us or because we had a better skill set to reach the rest of the world with His light. It says He set His love upon us for two reasons. He picked Israel for two reasons. He says, number one, verse eight, but because the Lord loved you. And number two, the second reason, because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers. Now, God is love. He loves the entire world because it's who He is. He loved Israel. Now, you think he didn't love them specially, but he picked them because he loved them, just like he loves everybody. But he had also made a promise to their forefathers that he would bring them into the land and give them that land. God had told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give them this land, and God keeps his promises because he's a good God. And that brings us to the third reason why we need to have a zero tolerance policy with idolatry, Not only because we're called to be different, not only because we're not intrinsically better than anybody else, but because he's the only good God. Any idolatry of any sort is bad for us because he's the only good God. Verse 9, the Lord tells them, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God. Nobody else. He is God. That alone should be, you know, a reason to worship and obey him since he's the only God. But not only that, God is a good God. He is a good God. And so it goes on to say here that he is the faithful God. The word there faithful means trustworthy, loyal, dependable. Let me ask you a question. How many things can you say that about in life? You say that about your bank account? Not mine. Can you say that about your work situation? I hope mine's pretty steady. There are many things that we can look at and we can try to find those things. When we say any of them are exactly that. They're faithful, dependable, loyal, trustworthy. God is. He is the only good God. And because he's faithful and because he doesn't fail, he blesses those who love him and he judges those who reject him. It says here that he is the faithful God which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The word there to keep, it means to exercise great care. Now, the word covenant there refers to our relationship with God. God exercises great care in our relationship with him. God is not slovenly towards his promises and towards our relationship with him. He's not nonchalant in our interactions with each other. He takes great uh, care to ensure every ounce of his word is kept. He takes great care to show his love toward us. And he does it, the Bible says, to a thousand generations. God never wavers in this commitment. I waver in that commitment sometimes. I made a promise to my wife that I would love her for better or worse, that I would be with her and stand by her side in richer or poorer sickness and health and all that stuff, right? I've not always been faithful to that. I've not always done a good job at that. There are times where our commitments waver because we're tired, we're frustrated, we're not doing well, whatever it might be. God isn't like that. God doesn't have a bad day. When you're praying, God doesn't put the pillow over his head and go, tomorrow, not today. Don't you see how things are blowing up over there in Korea? I got too much on my plate right now. God never wavers in this commitment. That commitment is also just as strong toward those who hate him. In verse 10, he says, And he repays them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay him to his face. The phrase there, to them that hate him, it simply means to those that don't love him, to those who are unwilling to deal with him. Now, obviously, those who are unwilling to deal with him sometimes do hate God. I've I've always been fascinated by atheists who hate God. I'm like, how can you hate someone that you don't think exists? But there's incredible vehemence and hatred towards this God. Even to say words towards this God. They actually have conversations with this God in their debates and stuff. I would tell God, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, how do you talk to somebody who's not there? But I won't go there. But either way, it doesn't just mean those who hate him. It just means those who say, I don't want to deal with you, God. I don't want you in my life. I don't care. I don't love you. I don't want anything to do with you. See, what's interesting with the believer, God gives us what we haven't earned. He says he keeps covenant and mercy towards those who love him. He gives us what we haven't earned. He gives us grace and mercy. But with the unbeliever, what does he call it here? He repays them, right? He gives them their wages. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, what? For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord salvation blessing all of it is a gift from God but if you don't want anything to do with God you don't want to deal with God you don't want him in your life the Lord says fine I'll give you what you deserve what you've earned and the wages of sin is death now it's interesting here because the Lord says that he will destroy that he will repay them to their face he will repay them again it says at the end to his face What does it mean? Whenever you say that in the Hebrew, it's a Hebrew idiom means I will do it personally. God's not going to send a henchman. Like you hear those stories about, you know, angels or demons dragging somebody off to hell. There'll be none of that. Every person will get their day in court before the living God. That's what the great white throne judgment is. You will stand before the living God, and he will deal with you personally. Now, that's if you don't know the Lord. If you do know the Lord, you don't go to that judgment. You're seated at the right hand with Christ. But those who don't know the Lord who reject him they will stand before God and he will deal with them personally. Just as God's forgiveness and relationship with him through that forgiveness is personal, so is his judgment. No one gets lumped into a crowd. No one gets judged because of what the crowd did. Every man dies for his own sin. In Ezekiel 18, 20, it says, the soul that sins, it shall die. They will not be judged for their father's sin or their forefather's sin. Every soul will die for his own sin and God will deal with that person individually, and personally. God deserves our worship because he alone is God. But his goodness towards us should motivate us to love him back with, with all that's in us. And so in verse 11, the Lord says, therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command you this day to do them. My will, my heart, my standards, you need to exercise great care to do them. Wherefore, if you do that, it shall come to pass. If you hearken to these judgments and you keep and you do them, that the Lord your God shall keep unto you the covenant and the mercy which he swore unto your forefathers." And he will love you. He will bless you. And he'll multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. The fruit of your land. Your corn and your wine and your oil. The increase of your kine, and the flocks of your sheep. In the land which he sware unto your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness. And will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt. Which you know. Which means you saw there. Upon you. But he will lay upon all them that hate you this is how god says he will bless israel if they obey him now here's the crazy part about our walk with the lord we love him why because he first loved us but when we love him back he blesses us for it isn't that crazy like the lord seriously the lord's like hey how's how much i love you this is what i've done for you i've died for you i've done everything and we go right on all right, Lord, I'll take that. That sounds great. And then I'll give you my life. And the Lord's like, awesome. Here's, here's a blessing for obedience. And Lord, wait, 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 wait. I'm just doing the reasonable thing, Lord. Yeah, but I just love you and I want to bless you. That's how it works. In the book of Revelation, we see that we cast our crowns down before Him, right? But then when you see them back again later in Revelation, they do them again because it means he gave them back to us. See, we're going to cast our crowns down and go, Lord, you're worthy. We're not worthy. And that's what they're going to sing during that time. They're going to throw their crowns down and go, Lord, you did all the work. It's all about you. You're the faithful one. And those are going to go, yeah, but I just like blessing you. And put it right back on your head. I just love you. I just want to bless you. And we'll keep throwing them down. And he'll keep giving them back to us. Bible says he's going to show us his mercy and his kindness for all eternity. Doesn't that sound like a good gig? We look here and we go, oh, wait a second, Pastor Will, I want to know about this kind increasing and all my flocks doing well and not being barren and stuff and no diseases. What about that? Well, this is a promise to the nation of Israel. We are not a physical nation. Yes. So the specifics of that promise don't apply to us, even though the principle of God wanting to bless us does apply to us. But we do know that God has given us precious promises. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Peter tells us that, that we have unique promises that are for us. Israel had unique promises to them, and we have unique promises to us. Peter said, according as his divine power, this is Second Peter 1, 3 and 4, according as his divine power has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Now, you say, what are those great and precious promises? We well, got to read the New Testament, man. I can't cover it in one night. But that's the idea, that by those you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world that is through lust. You know, God has given us unique promises. And so even though these specific promises, we can't claim those, we can claim the ones that are in the New Testament because God wants to bless us. We look here and we go, but wait a second, Will. The Lord says that he would only do this if they loved him. And if they obeyed his commandments, are God's promises that way to us? I thought that the new covenant's better and salvation isn't based on us, it's based on the Lord's faithfulness. Well, you're right. That doesn't mean that some of God's promises to bless us aren't conditional. Many of them are unconditional, but some of them are conditional. Now, the unconditional ones usually are in reference to the blessings of salvation. For example, when we place our faith in Christ, Jesus promises to never leave us or forsake us. That's unconditional. There's no but in there. There's no, or if you do this. It's, I will not let you go. I will not let you down. I will not leave thee. I will not forsake thee. That is his promise to us. It is unconditional. You can always stand upon that. But Ephesians 6 2 is a conditional promise. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And this is the first commandment with blessing, right? So that is a conditional promise. And there are many of those in the New Testament too. But that's not a salvation blessing. If you don't confuse the two, you'll be fine in understanding what's conditional and what's unconditional. To ensure a zero Tolerance, idolatry policy required no compromise. If you're going to have that policy, it means no compromise in dealing with the people in the land. And so in verse 16, back in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord returns to that topic, their task at hand. And he says in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 7, and you shall consume all the people which the Lord your God shall deliver you. Your eyes shall have no pity upon them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare unto you. And here we're going to find in these closing verses some good lessons about how we can deal with difficult tasks the Lord gives to us. And number one is you cannot let powerful emotions keep you from obedience. The word there to show no pity, it means to want to spare or rescue someone from great punishment. Being God's hand of judgment wasn't easy for Israel. So often people portray the Old Testament as this unemotional barbaric slaughter of anyone against God, but it was never that way. The Israelites were real people like you and me. They weren't delighting in slaughter. They weren't delighting in killing anybody. And that's evidenced by the fact that they didn't do it many times. But even though it was difficult, the Lord says you cannot let your emotions, your feelings keep you from obeying me. And if you've got a difficult thing the Lord's asked you to do, you cannot let your emotions get in the way of doing what God's called you to do. Now, there are other reasons this task was difficult. Verse 17 if you shall say in your heart, Well these nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Well you shall not be afraid of them. But you shall well remember what the Lord your God did unto Pharaoh and unto all Egypt. All the great temptations, the word their temptations, it means the proving or testing that God did for Egypt. Remember, God didn't want to judge Egypt. God gave Pharaoh and Egypt every chance to repent, but they refused. They failed the test. So he says, remember the great test which your eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the stretched out arm whereby the Lord your God brought you out? So shall the Lord your God do unto all the people of whom you are afraid. Israel was afraid right now. They weren't all confident and ready to go and we can take these guys. They were scared. They could look right across the river and see Jericho, massive walled city with chariots running around on top of it. That's how big the walls and thick the walls were. They didn't know how they were going to take that city. Sometimes God's commands feel impossible. But if I dwell on that and think, well, if I obey God, I might lose my job or my marriage, you know, I might lose my marriage or my relationship with my kids. Those fears can be real. But in those situations like Israel, I need to remember the miraculous things that God has done in the past because those are guarantees that will come through in the future. If you have a difficult task in front of you, not only can you not let powerful emotions keep you from obeying God, but you must remember what God has done in the past. That's why reading your Bible is so important. Remembering is important. In fact, the phrase here, it says, you will well remember what the Lord your God did. Well remember just means remember is doubled. Remember, remember. And that's why it's well remember because remembering is so important. That's why reading our Bible is so important because when you've been reading about God's miracles, it's easier to trust him When you need one of your own, isn't it? When you see what he's done in the past. Israel's probably thinking, yeah, we get what you did in Egypt, Lord, but this ain't Egypt. We were trying to leave their land, not drive them out of it. How can we rid this land of every single Canaanite? It's an impossible task, Lord. And so the Lord has an answer for that concern. Look at verse 20. The Lord says, moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until they that are left and hide themselves from you be destroyed. You shall not be affrighted at them for the Lord your God is among you, a mighty God. And a terrible, as King James says it, but it means an awesome God. Now, the hornet in the Middle East is a little bit different than our hornet. It's a large, highly aggressive wasp in the promised land. But this word can also just mean panic or fearful confusion. And God did that. He did that miracle sometimes where he created panic or confusion in an army. So either way, whether God sends literal hornets or he sends panic and fearful confusion, God's going to do a miracle to flush them into the open if Israel will just trust the Lord and be obedient. He says, don't you be affrighted. I'm going to fright them. I will take care of them. You trust and obey me. Whether it's your health or your financial well-being or relationship that you're worried about, when something seems unresolved, it can be terrifying, can't it? I don't know if I've got cancer. I don't know if they'll, they'll forgive me or I don't know. I mean, it can be terrifying, can't it? We imagine the worse or something more terrifying than the worst. I do that. I imagine something that's not even like practically able to happen. My arm hurts. I think I've got typhoid fever. But the Lord says, I'm going to make them feel that way. Don't you feel that way? You keep your eyes on me because I'm bigger than anything you'll ever face. I am the mighty and the awesome God. And do you believe God is that for you tonight? that he already knows specific details of your situation, and that he's mighty enough to go before you and handle however impossible your task may seem. Part of the difficulty in obeying God is it will take perseverance. It's not gonna be like one big fight, one big battle in the promised land, and yay, the promised land's ours, let's go make homes. They have to stay on task, and they have to stay on task for a while. They have to keep obeying. But that brings up a good question. Lord, since you can do any miracle, why not just defeat them all in one big battle? Why not just bring them all out and rain down fire from heaven and it's a done day? Well, not only if we have a difficult task in front of us, must we not let powerful emotions keep us from obeying, not only must we remember what God's done in the past, not only must we recognize that God has already worked out the details, but we must realize that God sees a bigger picture than we do. Look at verse 22. It says, and the Lord your God, he will put out those nations before you by little and little, You may not consume them all at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon you. But the Lord your God shall destroy them, deliver them unto you, and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed. God had already actually told them this in Exodus 23, that it would be a slow process. See, God didn't want the promised land becoming a wasteland. That's what happened after Rome destroyed Jerusalem and it deported all the Jews, 17 centuries later, it it was a swampy wasteland, but 17 centuries later, when Mark Twain visited the Holy Land, he said it was uninhabitable. He declared it uninhabitable. Who would ever live here? It's a swampy wasteland. Just because God will fulfill his promises slowly, it didn't mean he wouldn't finish what he started. And so the Lord says, you need to stay on task. The last difficulty that Israel had was, well, Lord, these nations have kings. I mean, they have visible leaders on the front lines. And while the Lord was Israel's king, he wasn't guiding them by the smoky cloud by day and the fiery pillar by night anymore. He wasn't visibly in front of them anymore. Once they crossed over, that was going to go away. The manna was going to stop. That was all going to go away. So without a visible king to go before him, aren't we inferior to the other nations? And maybe you felt like that. Maybe you've felt like, well, Lord, I know what your word says, but it sure would be nice to see that you're here right now. Well, the Lord wants us to know that even when we can't see him, he is bigger than any king, any foe, and anything we can face. For he says in verse 24 to Israel, and he shall deliver their kings into your hand, and you shall destroy their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. The Lord says, I'm not just going to defeat their kings. These people groups won't even exist anymore. And I ask you, of you have met any Gergeshites lately? How about any Hittites? Any Canaanites at all? You haven't because they don't exist. In many cases, these people were so lost to history that scholars debated if they even existed. They thought the Bible's not true. These these people groups don't exist. But one by one, archaeology proved they would find information. For example, the Hittites were one of the groups that the Bible talks about a lot. And they're like, there are no Hittites out there. I mean, they don't exist. Till they discovered a layer underneath that spanned from the Asia Minor all the way to the promised land of this massive empire that existed. God kept his word. No man, not even their kings, could stand before him. Now, since this is true, Israel shouldn't fear or admire these nations. They should go into the land with confidence, and once they're done with them, eradicate any memory of their idolatry. And this is the last principle. Not only if we're gonna have a difficult task in front of us, we need to trust that God can erase any problem without breaking a sweat, but we also need to follow it through to the very end. He says here, the graven images of their goods shall you burn with fire. You shall not desire to covet or lust after the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it to you, lest you be snared from it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. Neither shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest thou be a cursed thing like it, but you shall utterly detest it, you shall utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. You know, it's gonna be difficult for Israel to melt down these idols with all the precious metals used to beautify them, but any monetary gain they could get wasn't worth leaving a memory of where it came from and what it represented. The word abomination means something repulsive. A cursed thing means something to be destroyed. Israel was to remove all memory of the wickedness of the Canaanites so they would never be tempted to go there themselves. No compromise, zero tolerance. The words detest and abhor, you see utterly before them, that means they're doubled. Don't go anywhere near these things is what God says. Frequently, we as Christians, we want the approval of the world, so we borrow their ideas, we copy their methods. We figure, well, it works, right? Why not? But the danger is that those things can be a trap to us. It can lure us closer and closer to things that God hates. So let's be thorough. Let's follow God's command through to the very end. If you have a difficult task in front of you right now, don't let powerful emotions keep you from obedience. Remember what God did in the past, recognize that God has already worked out the details, realize God sees the bigger picture, trust that God can erase any problem you have without breaking a sweat, and follow it through to the very end. Sadly, Israel did not obey the Lord in this, and everything God said would happen to them, because if they, did, if they would disobey Him, it did happen. And so the question is, will you and I learn from that failure? Do I believe God means what He says? And am I willing to obey him even when what he tells me to do is difficult? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for a hard lesson. You know, this is not something we can address lightly, Lord, because you brought judgment upon seven nations worth of people. Lord, we sit there and we think about that and it's ominous. And we recognize, Lord, that judgment is coming again that you will judge the world in righteousness. You said it from your own lips, Jesus. The day is coming when you will judge the world in righteousness. Now, Lord, in the meantime, we're to go out and be lights for you. So, Lord, we commit to you now to have a zero-tolerance policy with idolatry, a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to being obedient to you, that we're gonna do what you say, even if it's hard, and we're gonna follow it through to the end. So, Lord, if we're in that situation right now where we're struggling, being obedient to you, Lord, will you help us to see that you love us? Through the teaching of your word tonight, would you confirm that you're for us and that as we trust you, you've gone before us, you see the bigger picture, you've already worked out the details, your faithfulness in the past is a guarantee you'll be faithful in the future. Lord, we choose to trust you tonight and to follow you to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: God will call each one of us to difficult tasks. We may not always understand how things will work out or why things are the way they are, but we can trust who God is. We can trust His character and past faithfulness. He desires to bless us, and as we walk obediently, we will find that following His word without compromise is always worth it. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando.